Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. We are heading to Shanghai, China to meet Martin Daphne, who is the president and founder of Innerbricks. We're going to learn about innovation in China. We're going to learn about 25 years of experience with brands such as Cisco, Avery and Denison, P&G, turning ideas into revenue. What are the challenges facing large corporates in turning those ideas into competitive advantage and to profitable businesses. And how are they doing it in China? How are they doing it differently? What is it that Chinese companies are doing better in the innovation space? What are they learning? We're gonna learn about lean startups for China and that whole fit for China innovation model. So coming up in the next 40 minutes, if you wanna learn about the cutting edge of innovation, listen to this interview with Martin Daphne of Innerbricks. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're heading to Shanghai, China to learn about innovation in China, lean startups fit for China, and 25 years experience of turning ideas into revenues, both inside and outside of the corporate world. To do this, I'm joined by Martin Daphne, the founder of Innerbricks. Martin, welcome to the show. Great to be here again, Graham. Well, it was excellent to have you there. And we're going to learn about your journey, how you got to Asia, the whole innovation in Asia thing, because this is such an exciting time to be in Asia, in the innovation space. So with that in mind, let's start at the top. Talk about Innerbricks. What is it that you do? What's the, you know, what's the problem that you solve, Martin? Yeah, it, it, it's always a struggle for me to try to explain this succinctly to, to other folks who don't work in the innovation space. Um, but to, to be very concise, uh, I help usually corporates, but my paying clients are corporates, uh, figure out how to leverage ideas inside their firm or ideas outside their firm to turn those into revenue profitable mm. revenue. Um, at a high level, that's what I do. The The, the crux of it, uh, it comes down to the, the question you had raised earlier, right? You know, what keeps, what's getting in the way? What are some of the barriers mm. to corporates doing that? And, and I think this is true inside Asia and outside Asia. And we can talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of trying to do it in Asia. But coming from, you know, 20 plus years working for large corporates, um, there is a fundamental barrier for people working inside corporates to get an, an idea, a new idea, even if it's not that disruptive, into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And getting a new idea out the door takes two key things. It, it takes a bit of creativity and a bit of risk-taking, okay? And Interestingly enough, for those of us that grow up in the corporate world, um, we're actually not rewarded typically for taking a lot of risks. Mm. We're rewarded typically for mitigating risks, for minimizing risks, for finding ways around risks. And, and that's a fundamental reason why large corporates struggle to get uh, new ideas out the door. So in innovation, there's a great book written by a, uh, a woman named Jacqueline Bird, yeah. um, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota, and it's called The Innovation Equation. My favorite books for something like innovation mindset, 
because it very clearly uh, defines innovation capability as a function of both creativity and risk taking. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a great deal of statistics behind this and a lot of data, which for an engineer like myself is very meaningful. Uh, but essentially, you've got to have both. You've got to have good creativity. And you've, got to, you've got to be able to take some risks. And the risk-taking bit gets in the way for corporates. And so a lot of what I do is help corporates understand how to do that in a measured, acceptable fashion. So take a small risk, learn a little pivot, take another risk, learn a little pivot and do that very quickly, which is lean startup. Got it. So help me understand this, Martin, and the listeners as well, if they're not from the world of corporates and they, they live in more agile worlds. And we, we grew up with the, you know, the, the mythos and the stories of people like 3M, uh, you know, 3M and their, their post-it notes and their stickies and so on, where it seems that they have the resources to, to nurture ideas and, you know, from a different era, maybe, you know, we are aware of like organizations like Xerox Park, these sort of skunk works that are just factories for ideas, just churning out ideas. And it seems like they're not short of ideas, these corporates. It, this, you know, has times changed? Is, is innovation a different animal now to when it was sort of, you know, pre-internet or, you know, 30 years ago now? Has, has something changed so fundamentally that corporates are now really struggling to innovate and turn it into revenue? Oh, a great question. I think times have changed, as is always the case. Uh, things have gotten a bit things. The marketplace has gotten more competitive. And this is very true in Asia as well. So let, let, me, take, let me take China for the last decade, decade and a half. You know, when I came out to China, uh, the rising tide as it were, was bringing, you know, all ships up. You didn't really have to be innovative. You just needed to be able to ship orders and Mm. you were going to grow. And the single biggest challenge most corporates, even multinationals had, you know, when I showed up in Shanghai uh, working for a large multinational to open up their Asia Pacific Innovation Center, Graham, I, I remember going out to customers, you know, the first couple of months I was on the ground, going out to our customers in China, and engaging them in a conversation about innovation because that's what I was here to help do. And almost all of the customers looked me in the eye at that time, this is going back to 2005, Mm. looked me in the eye and said, you know what, Marty, we'd love to talk about innovation, but why don't we leverage it to make sure that you guys can ship your orders on time at quality every time? Right. Because until we get that squared away, we're, we're not, really able to leverage innovation. And they were right. And the issue was that the order volatility was changing dramatically. You know, two weeks, three weeks, even one week before the order was to be shipped, Graham, it might double. Hmm. You know, the order might go from 100,000 units to 200,000 units because the market was growing so quickly and there was so much volatility built into the value chain that things got really bumpy. Uh, in those years in China. And so we were leveraging innovation to be able to deal with volatility more than create a new service offering. Mm-hmm. You know, the new service offering was be able to double your order in, in, in a week and still get it out on time at quality. So that's changed. The The volatility marketplace, the demand volatility has reduced significantly and the competition has increased tremendously. Now Chinese firms, even multinationals in China, are looking for new and different. Uh, 
you know, products and services that are new and different. And, and that's a relatively new demand. I would say since 2009, 10, uh, even more so since maybe 2012 or 13. Prior to that, it was just give us what you got. Mm. And now it's what, what have you got new? Mm. Uh, and that's so a fascinating that shift, changed. though. I mean, it's a fundamental shift as well. It's a different type of innovation and a different demand, isn't it? So, you know, you're talking about in the last seven or eight years, people now have built out the, the fundamentals of the market, the infrastructure's in place. Now people are thinking about more long-term rather than something just to fix this supply chain problem here and now. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you, if you add to that, and I'm gonna talk specifically now in Asia, Graham, you add to that uh, where the leadership has come from. So the, the leadership in China now, meaning the very senior leaders, people who are running the firm or running the local business entity for the firm, um, they are compared to 15 years ago, they are much more likely to be local. Uh, 15 years ago, even if it was a multinational company, uh, the, the lead in China was still often an expat. Mm. That's that's almost never the case now. So it's a local leader and the local leaders quite typically have grown up in China through the through the last 10 to 20 years. They might be 20 years experience. But look at that experience in China over 20 years. It's really been an experience of trying to keep up with demand Mm. and and grow, 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 grow. So now they're in a very different economic and and market dynamic. Uh, It's not grow, grow, grow the way it was before, now it's compete, compete, compete. Mm. And by no fault of their own, these leaders often haven't lived through really tough competitive situations that uh, the West has been living through for the last three decades, five decades in many cases. So they just haven't had a lot of time in the trenches of this compete, compete, compete world. And, and this is the first time they've had to deal with that kind of competition. Mm. So uh, it's changed for them, and it's a, it's a brand new beast. You know, how do we deal with the they, – they know how to turn the price knob, mm-hmm. but, but they don't necessarily know how to turn the innovation knob. They mm. haven't had to do it before. It's an interesting mix, isn't it, Martin? You have that situation, like you describe it very well, where the West has had 30 to 50 years of practice in the trenches – competing you know fierce rivals in in many verticals yet here we are now in china for example where you have these these uh large it players going head to head with each other and this is quite a new prospect isn't it yet they are armed with very deep pockets you know they have a lot of cash to throw at innovation so so what is what kind of environment does that create you know where it's all very rapidly accelerated innovation where well, the, the need for innovation is, is the premium must be extremely high if you add to that, you know, the amount of resources that they can throw at it. Yeah, it's a great point. And, and I think what we saw in maybe 2012, 13, 14, Graham, we saw uh, businesses in, in many cases buying market share by dropping price mm-hmm. and really eroding the market, even in a tech market. Uh, eroding that market with 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 margins that are unsustainable. I, I, what I've seen is that's largely stopped. That was 2011, 12, 13, and and business leaders in China got that that was not a sustainable strategy, hmm. and and they started experimenting with 
frankly, different kind of innovation models than we've typically had in the West. And I'll I'll give the, the Chinese business community a lot of credit for really being entrepreneurial and experimenting with a lot of different a lot of different stuff. And surprisingly, a lot of it in the open innovation realm, mm. which I don't think this part of the world and the businesses in this part of the world get enough credit for uh, globally. You don't hear a lot of folks in the West talking about how Xiaomi um, innovates mm, or, exactly. or, or high air innovates and it's incredible it, it's incredibly innovative way to innovate mm -hmm. uh, Xiaomi is, is a great example where they you know they understand their core competency as a business is going to going to mass market so consumer market with with a very Xiaomi balance of value mm -hmm. you know price to functionality and design value. And so that's what they focus on. And just about everything else, like the different kinds of things you could do, functionality, technology, they outsource uh, largely to the startup world for many years and now starting to partner more and more with other big firms like Philips, for example. Mm -hmm. So Xiaomi says, hey, guys, as long as you're as long as you've got a product uh, that is acceptable in the mass market. So we want to deliver products to consumers, you know, big market size. Uh, as long as it fits that and you let us do a lot of the design work to make sure it fits that right value, Xiaomi value of cool design, pretty good functionality and a great price. Uh, as long as you let us do that, we want, we want to take your tech or your widget to that market. And that's incredibly innovative. You wouldn't see, uh, you know, a, a typical Western business be that open. You're very right. Um, it's a great example, Xiaomi, isn't it? That I, I think I remember, Martin, if you, I saw a, a slide, a presentation deck from Xiaomi going back four or five years. And on that slide deck, it said Xiaomi was not a, a mobile phone company, a smartphone company. It was an IoT company. That was their goal. You know, they wanted to create this sort of connected internet of things, whether it be like the light bulbs or down to, you know, your smart plugs, right? So they had that vision, which I suppose was quite innovative. And what I found fascinating about them, great that you brought that example up, is that they took a lot of criticism very early on. They were heavily criticized by a lot of people because, you know, people saw what they were doing and they were kind of at the beginning operating at the low end of, of innovation you know they were the cheaper version of the smartphone exactly. out there um they've yep. done great things in india but also they they've built a community and i think they got a lot of criticism because they kind of borrowed a little bit of apple's marketing sort of strategy and creating that lifestyle brand didn't they with the, the retail stores and so on but i find it fascinating they stuck their course they carried on with it and just continue to grow and i think they're proving the critics wrong right eventually they're coming yeah. through yeah no i agree with you i mean i like the apple analogy on xiaomi because they're they're kind of the apple for the i will say the the value consumer mm, right, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll use that term you know we the average chinese the indian we can't afford an a, an iphone 10 you know, and, and, and yet we want, and we don't need all the whistles and bells of that iPhone 10, right? So Xiaomi was really clear on who their customer segment was and what that customer segment valued. And, and they nailed that. And you're right. They stuck to their guns because they knew they had that. And it was only, 
a matter of time before they were able to build that brand equity. Mm. And now everybody knows what you get when you buy Xiaomi, right? You, you, you don't get the top of the line. Uh, you get a very good balance of uh, price, quality, and functionality. Mm. So, so uh, what, what is that? You're buying is an it... air purifier or a mobile phone, you know, it's, it's all, it, that's the common thread. Is it innovation? It, that's fine. Is that is that innovation? Would you class that in terms of what Xiaomi has done? Innovative? Because, you know, it's not necessarily employing the latest AI chip in the smartphone to, to you know, that would be what people call innovation if you look at innovation, for example, like Huawei yeah. and so on. But is that innovation yeah. what they've done? So I I would. I would classify their their business model, or maybe better put their operating model as innovative, Graham. I think the the innovative thing that Xiaomi did was say, we're not going to do all this in-house. Uh, we're, we're going to out open source to some extent a lot of the functionality that we want our devices or our Xiaomi stuff to have. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to be very – we're even going to be open – and outsource to some extent the market segments that we play in, the verticals. I mean, Xiaomi didn't go out and say, hey, we want to be in the air purifier business until somebody knocked on the door and said, hey, we've, we've got an air purifier technology we think would be a good fit. And and then they did the Xiaomi design version of that and, and launched it and it's been very successful. Um, so, yeah, I think that's innovative. Their operating model and the, and the way they view their brand and and how they partner external to the walls of Xiaomi uh, to bring stuff to their target market segment is is innovative. I I don't know anybody else who does it like Xiaomi. Mm. Um, well, very insightful. I, I was just wondering if that is a Chinese thing. Is that a product <laughs> of where they came from? To what extent, when you you look at the DNA of their business and how they operate, how, how much is that a function of where they came from? Mm, I. It's a great question. I, you know, we can we can hypothesize how much of that could <laughs> could have happened outside. I think it's an emerging market thing for sure, because it, a mature market kind of knows the, its market size and and how to play in that market. Uh, an emerging market, particularly in huge markets like India and China, um, you you have you can have different plays, different strategic plays. Uh, to build a very large, scalable, and with, with good cash flow and good financials uh, business. And so I don't know if you could have done – I don't think you could do what Xiaomi does mm. in Western Europe. Uh, first of all, I don't think the consumers would, would go for it, and the, and the value segment in Europe is, may not be large enough mm. to support that kind of play. Mm. So I think a large – I think it's unique to a larger – emerging market uh that happens to be china but i could i could have seen a xiaomi a kind of operating model emerge in, in india mm. and perhaps it hasn't i'm just not aware of it because i'm not on the ground there yeah we don't know do we but certainly very interesting that that those sort of fundamentals have contributed to to that model it's there seems to be you know historically that there is a pattern of innovation isn't there i mean and i want you to get your sort of opinion on this is that china only very recently has started innovating in the very sort of the deep tech or the high end space or that we're aware of it, you know, outside of China. Now we see, for example, like the number of AI patent applications, 
I think now outnumber in China those similarly filed in the US. So the, the, the sort of more AI technology being developed or being registered and patented in China than there is in the US. So there's sort of these sort of leading edge indicators coming out. And we're aware of, for example, like the, you know, the, the facial recognition companies and what Alibaba is doing with, you know, new retail and so on. So we sort of moved from this sort of copycat innovation, if you like, which is which every, you know, every economy has gone through in some way. Even the US, if you go back to historically, you know, they their automotive industry was a copycat of what they were doing in France and Germany at the time. There was that sort of, you know, and the same Japan copied Detroit. So there, there are these patterns, aren't there? And, you know, you look, what's happening now in China? What is, you know, really at the front edge of innovation? Do you think that the, the West, quote unquote, is prepared or ready for what's coming out of China right now? Because, you know, I suppose if you go back to American media, you won't hear a lot about, you know, AI startups or new retail startups in China will you? until they start turning up in, you know, Wisconsin or the West Coast somewhere. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, so it's difficult for me to fully appreciate what the West, uh, is aware of and sees, right. Cause I just don't spend as much, I don't spend that much time over there. Uh, but I will say that, uh, I think everybody East West globally can agree on a couple of things. Uh, one key thing to your point, I think FinTech, you know, financial tech, everybody in the financial ecosystem industry is pretty much unanimously agreed that China is leading the way in fintech. Okay. And maybe even particularly Shanghai. So how people pay for things and, and how that's integrated in, in every other thing that you do and, and the rest of your life on, on your mobile apps, et cetera. China is, is leading the way uh, without question. Um, AI, there might still be some uh, some debate. I think autonomous driving is largely happening uh, on the West Coast of the U.S. Um, but uh, facial recognition, a great example that you mentioned, is the the, the leading edge tech on that is uh, is coming out of the East. Uh, there's one thing that I, I a relatively common thread that I have seen in, in the fintech helps bring it to life, which is one reason why I wanted to mention that example. The Chinese culturally, historically, for hundreds of years, if not more, have been very innovative with uh, revenue models that share the pieces of the pie across a, a, a rather complicated value chain. Hmm. They've just They've created so many complicated revenue sharing schemes long before there was an internet, right? These guys are just culturally very well practiced at, at uh, everybody getting a piece, mm. right? And and how they organize that and manage that and orchestrate that is is just indigenous to their culture. And so it's no surprise to me that fintech, which has to provide for a lot of that, right? Everybody's got their 0.2% of this or that, you know, transaction. Um, uh, they're, they're quite at home. Those, those negotiations and those discussions fit very well with the way of doing business in China. And to the extent that the Internet of Things – 
uh, is connected with with AI, I, I think that fits as well, right? So if you've got a facial rec- recognition technology that's being used someplace, going through some uh, 3G, 4G, 5G um, infrastructure system, landing on somebody's server who's actually running the algorithm to process the recognition and then trans- translating that back to the edge, uh, who's then going to use that that recognition to make a decision? Well, there's there's at least three or four players in that value chain, and for every face, there's a there's a monetization moment. Mm. And, and so those complicated kinds of, of business models and revenue streams, um, well, they they might be might be a lot easier to get everyone aligned on in a place like China because of the the nature of business in China over the, over the years. So I think where, where that can, where that culture helps facilitate uh, speed to market and agility, uh, China has an edge. That is fascinating. So historically business in, in China has been adept at involving many parties and in, in complicated arrangements. And like you say, you know, where everybody gets their piece. It's, it's more of a mm. consensus-based model. And it's interesting that you explain it that way and, and how important that then is translated to an environment like FinTech, like you say, where there are many, many different vertical sectors involved. And you have to have that kind of consensus approach to making it happen, as opposed to maybe like the standard oil approach, which is just own the whole thing yourself, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's, completely vertical dominance, right? Yeah. Exactly. From from the from the ground to to your to to the furnace in your home, it's all one all one, one company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that that is really that is really fascinating, Martin, that you explained it like that. I suppose we've seen parallels. I mean, if we if we look at where China is really excelling right now in that those sort of complicated business model spaces like fintech and AI or big data as well and IoT where there are many many different parties many many different data sets involved if we sort of see any kind of historical precedents like Japan as an example you know in the the growth of telecommunications the 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 mobile internet in Japan was was ahead of the the rest of the world you know that if you go yeah, back to true. the the mid yeah. to late 90s when docomo really just blasted the rest of the world out of the water with its mobile internet service. I mean, it had an application ecosystem long before Apple even came up with the idea. And it was very much a consensus approach, wasn't it? I wonder if there's parallels there where you had one large player, which was NTT Docomo, and around that you had four or five manufacturers who would all build the phones around this specification. Mm. And then you'd have all the application developers in this ecosystem. And then you'd also plug into that banks, payments, and so on. That consensus approach worked very, very well in a new emerging market where there were no rules. And you needed everybody to come together and work on this this sort of centralized vision of innovation of what it should be about making people's lives better and so on. Whereas in the West, we were still sort of like, no, we're going to own 51% of the market share. That was the goal for everybody back then. So I wonder right. if there's parallels between that sort of Japanese market in the early telecommunications and what's happening in China today, where you've got these sort of large players who are able to garner many, many interest groups around them and create these ecosystems very successfully. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about it until you just now mentioned it, Graham, but I think another element that is consistent across the Japanese telecom model that you just described and what I see happening in China is this notion of a 
a common nationalistic um, motivation. In mm. Japan at that time was was seeking to help promote Japan. And uh, it might not have been as explicit and overt as that, but there was a there was a common bond. Mm. Hey, we're Japanese. We we can show the world that we know how to do this. And and we there was a team sense in that regard. Like we're all on the Japan team here, and and this is a world uh, it, w- global implications. Uh, but a Japan team that's going to drive something with global implication. I, I feel that a lot in China as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is business, but you know, to the extent that there's an opportunity for China to demonstrate leadership, China consortium, mm-hmm. you know, a, a collection of Chinese entities to demonstrate global leadership, that means something. And and let's face it, in the U.S., at least, you know, when I worked there, we didn't talk about it that way. Uh, it was business, right? There was there. It was more more important to get the right thing done for the business. And how much of that right thing would we be willing to sacrifice, compromise in order to show that the United States got this? this new thing to market first, mm. probably not much. wasn't real important. Should it be is a different question, Yeah, but it wasn't. That is very interesting. I, I think back to, I mean, if you go way back, you go back to like the Kennedy moonshot as an example. There you, know, you go. There you go. That yeah. That's probably the nearest example, I suppose, isn't it? Where you have yeah. leadership that creates a vision and so it, it's nationalistic, but it's a, I suppose it's a demonstration of soft power in many senses. But mm-hmm. everybody believes, I suppose in a way, you know, you would get that in the early days of working for a Google as well. You know, that we're, we're in this together. We're going to create this. You're going to innovate for this bigger purpose, this common bond, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's a sense of solidarity. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't want to use nationalism in a bad way. I don't, I don't consider that term uh, positive or negative, hmm. it, but yeah, it's a sense of solidarity. And I think the, you know, the speech that, that former president Kennedy gave at Rice university, you know, the, with the famous quote about landing a man on the moon and hmm. returning him back to earth safely before the end of the decade kind of, you know, that sets uh, solidarity that sets a precedent. We're going to go do this. Our leadership is aligned, and it it, it eliminates barriers between entities, mm. frankly, or mitigates a lot of that because we have a common goal and and this sense of collegiality and solidarity that allows us to. We might not have all the contract details worked out, but right. we're moving ahead together anyway, knowing that those contract details will get worked out. Yeah. It's more important to move forward than it is to cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Mm. And I and I got that. I get that in in China uh, these days, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, this is a, a yeah. I mean, if, if you're not involved in it you wouldn't see this at the ground level, right? You can see that, you can feel it and sense it, you're experiencing it. What's it actually like, Martin, when you, you, you talk a lot to corporates, to entrepreneurs, to innovators, you know, everybody in that spectrum in China, from the, the tinkerers to the designers, to the you know, developers, to the C-level executives, at the micro level, the, uh, individually, do they think differently, approach the problem differently to like, for example, their counterpart in London or in 
California? Is there a different approach? Are they, do they, you know, is, do they simply work harder or are they thinking about <laughs> things differently? You know, it's, it's a good question. I would, so there's one thing that I see still differently in, and it's the, because it's new, um, they're, they're trying a lot of different things at the same time. So what I typically see in the West is, well, we have, here's our process for doing that. Right. And, and okay, that's working about this way. We have the KPIs, we have the metrics, we can sort of trend analysis. And, and so when we go in to do something, uh, very rarely do we start from scratch on, on the, how are we going to do it? We kind of have a baseline. And while we might tweak that baseline a little bit based on learnings last time, okay, let's improve, right? We make a, a in, um, iterative improvements. What I see happening in, the, in, in Hong Kong and China right now, because I'm working across both uh, just about equally at the moment, uh, is, is both are, are trying a lot of stuff, clean sheet of paper, two or three or four different approaches at the same time. Hmm. And uh, that's also... A, a bit cultural, but I, they, they benefit from the fact that they haven't really been here and done that for, for decades. They're, they're benefiting with their ability to create a new way of working together. And let me take an example, startups collaborating with corporates. Mm. There's a lot of protocols for that in the West. Uh, they're creating new protocols for that here, and it just so happens that they're creating them at a time when information and, and biotech and things are are really, really rapidly changing due to the advent and, and, and the new use of smart machines, right, and, and our ability to do incredibly, incredibly different things with huge sets of data very, very quickly. So that's changing the nature of the experiment that we can run. And I think more so, you know, I've been doing this basically the same kind of thing uh, for almost 30 years now, Graham. And the last four years uh, with with the really accessible, high processing power uh, that we have, really accessible to run little experiments. You know, we don't need a lot of money to get AWS uh, access on a really good processing power and put some algorithms on there and start learning uh, a new application, right? Start learning how to do something new with a machine. We can do that very cost effectively now. We couldn't eight years ago. It didn't exist. And so now the, what's the model to partner with a small business that has some interesting algorithms and very specific expertise in a given area? What's the model for partnering with them in this new high processing power, low cost world? Well, it's different than the model of partnering with, let's say, a small medical device tech company in, in 2002, right? Those are, those should be very different. And, and so the East, to some extent, is benefiting from the fact that they don't have a lot of mechanisms for this. They're making them up, and they happen to be making them up to fit for that kind of tech, mm. as opposed to making them up fit for tech that might have been really prevalent in the 90s and, and very first part of 21st century. So does that mean, I mean, if we think about all those large corporates who are in China, and, and particularly those that have come from outside. So, you know, you can take your Cisco's, your Intel's, your PNG's that their reason now 
apart from having access to one of the largest consumer markets in the world, to be in China is, is they have access to this sandbox, which they couldn't get outside. You know, I just wonder at what point does that become the business case for being in China is that this is now where they're going to drive innovation. At what point will Intel, for example, you know, s develop and generate most of its, you know, innovation from that sort of small business, that ecosystem that they're building around, around it in China, as opposed to down in the valley somewhere, you know, are we, are we mm. going to achieve mm. a tipping point at some point? I'm, I'm, I might, somebody could make an argument that we're already there hmm. and, and with companies like Intel and Cisco, just two that I happen to know a little bit about, probably more so Intel than, than, than any, any other, um, with the exception of their core fundamental silicone tech, right? Which, which I think is still, uh, largely North American based and probably should be, be because of the, the, the deep expertise and the decades it takes to build that. But with respect to how to use that and the incremental processing power that it delivers um, to, to create other value propositions, um, I think that's a, a lot of that's happening. Mm. Maybe even most of that's happening within Intel um, in China. Now, I don't know for sure, and I should be very clear that I don't have access to Intel's tech development strategy or anything like that, right? <laughs> this is all just based on what I see uh, that in the public domain that Intel is doing uh, in China. And so let me just take an example. You know, the graphics processing um, to be able to support a lot of image analysis stuff, uh, both for th applications like like gaming or 3D rendering, um, a, a lot of that is happening uh, in China because the volume of applications for high-speed graphics rendering um, is in China. Mm. And so Intel developing new technology, new processing technology to put on their GPUs, uh, their graphics processing units, um, yeah, a lot of that's being being driven out of the application knowledge that they have in China and the tech, the tech capability is there. Mm. Um, the, the startups to partner with are, are, are there. So not exclusively, but let's face it, the volume of startups to partner with and, and applications uh, is in China. Absolutely. The, the interesting angle here to sort of throw in as well is, is talent when it comes to innovation, isn't it? Is that you have... <laughs> You know, I, I guess you have a key sort of factor here, which is access to a certain level of innovative talent, because I, I guess at a certain level of somebody's career where they, they are, you know, top of their game, top of their field, you know, a, a key uh, leader in innovation is that they, they, they seek out less the, the you know, the, the perks, the benefits of a, a good company, salary and a good company brand name but more about the 10x projects that they can work on right so you know that's why many have been many innovative people for many many generations have been attracted to the valley is because that's where the 10x projects would happen right you know you could go work for google and you could actually change the world in in a small way right but you could actually put yeah. a dent in the universe in steve jobs's terminology right <laughs> yeah. you could actually right, do right. that in in some way you know but now 
I just wonder about that sort of flow of innovative talent into places like Shanghai and Shenzhen and so on. You know, at what yeah. point will young kids graduating out of Stanford say, right, you know, I'm going to Shanghai now. I'm, I'm not going to stick around the valley. I'm going to, I'm heading out to Shanghai because that's where my fortunes are going to be made. I think once we get to that kind of tipping point, that's when that, that sort of speed of which China has caught up with the US accelerates, right? Because once they have the talent, then it sort of, you know, it becomes a virtuous circle, isn't it? Uh, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that talent moving out to China now? Or is, still, is it still a bit of a risk for, you know, people who want to get involved in those 10x projects? Yeah, it's a, it, it, what I have seen, Graham, is, is reminds me of kind of like the, the old West, you mm. know, gold mining. So you have the prospectors from the West come out. And so I have seen the Stanford grads um, land in China with, you know, dollar signs in their eyes <laughs> that they're going to, they're going to get rich quick. It's, it's not, it's, it's not that easy just as it wasn't that easy for the folks landing in the West in the, in the middle of the 19th century, you know, some of them, there were one or two here and there get rich quick, but most of them uh, find that it just takes a lot of time and hard work. Um, Having said that, I, there's a couple of things going on with respect to talent, and and so I'll I'll separate this into a couple of categories. There there are a lot of folks from all over the world, east and west, coming to China who want to do something different and are not looking to get rich quick, but they're looking for degrees of freedom, and they're willing to take risks to get those degrees of freedom. In other words, they're not necessarily attracted by the security of a big corporate job, and they're they're willing to give up that security to be able to have freedom to do to play. Now, the nice thing of why go play in China versus some other place? Well, because frankly speaking, you've got a higher probability of success when the market is huge and the needs are so much more diverse. So uh, you might find it with a you might find you have a great solution and a really really niche niche market but that niche niche market is is still <laughs> 300 million people yeah. big in china right mm. uh, or even 100 million you know consumers big that that's a niche market in a country of 1.3 billion people um, so that just gives you a higher probability of success and so i think entrepreneurs see that um, and and are coming out uh, the, the the other bucket uh, on, on talent is the internal. So the Chinese, the local population going into the workforce, um, they they are very logically and understandably um, looking initially for some security. These are folks that that did not grow up in a world that had a strong and healthy middle class. That's a relatively new thing. In China, and so they still want to make sure that that's secure for themselves and their family and their children. They want to they want to secure a, at least a middle class quality of life and good education for their children. Uh, but once that's secured, and this is what I have seen in my last 10, 12 years in China, once that's secured. You know, the, the, the Chinese engineers and scientists and technical people are fundamentally very, very similar uh, to the, the Western technical engineers and scientists. And those are the folks that I spend most of my time hanging out with, being an engineer myself. Um, they're, they're very similar. They get the once you have that security of, you know, my wife and kids are taken care of. Um, 
then you, you start to look for more, for more out of the career than simply security. And there is a strong interest, and I see it growing and growing. These are seasoned technologists in larger companies, 10, 15 years of experience. They know their craft. They know it very well, and they have ideas. And they're willing now to take more risks to see if they can turn those ideas into a business. They'd love to do that inside the walls of the company in most cases because they're, they are loyal to the company. Uh, loyalty to the firm is a cultural thing that's always going to be different in the East than the West. Uh, as an American, quite frankly, there's not a great deal of loyalty. Business is business, mm. and you're graded on performance. And in, in, in the East, it's a little different. Loyalty is still one of the most important factors with respect to promotion, longevity, security. Performance is important, but not – It's there are – they're different, okay? It's not the number one thing in most companies in the East, even multinationals uh, in the East. Uh, so you have a, a loyalty factor that drives folks to say, gosh, I've got a lot of great ideas and I'd love to turn these into business opportunities. And my first choice would be to figure out how to do that inside the, this company that I, I love and has treated me well and I, I am loyal to. And so to the extent that China and Chinese businesses can figure out how to leverage that, again, 10 to 15 year seasoned veteran, subject matter expert, great ideas, doesn't usually know how to turn that idea into a business. Didn't grow up as a business person, grew up as a technical person. That's the untapped potential in China. That's where I really believe China has a significant advantage. And any firms that want to come over and, and leverage that, that, either they're already here or they're coming here, um, they, this talent exists and it is creative and it can take risk. Uh, but it's not the young, fresh out of school, you know, let me go try to create my own business. We're starting to see some of that in China, but frankly, uh, it's – it's not the it's the scale of that and and I would say the the real capability entrepreneurship entrepreneurship muscle of that it's undeveloped right these are these are lots of passion not a lot of skill Chinese schools don't teach people how to be entrepreneurs mm. at all and I think Western schools even even undergrad, and grad schools in the West, they do teach people the basic skills uh, to be an entrepreneur. Uh, but that the education system in China is – that's the single biggest barrier. Uh, and, and I think to the extent that the West can come, come over here and, and help, uh, help these folks understand how to do this, there's benefit for both. That's the win-win. Awesome. That was Martin Daphner, everybody, founder and president of Innerbricks. Martin, I, and I hope the, the readers, sorry, the listeners agree, that was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed that and really insightful. We've learned so much in the last 45 minutes. And thank you for sharing your insights and your journey with us. Hey, listen, Martin, Martin what would be the, uh, the preferred channel for people to be in contact with you, find out more, reach out to you? Uh, probably LinkedIn is the best way to Got find it. me. Excellent. We'll put all the details in the show notes. Martin Daphne, Inno Bricks. Martin, thank you so much for today. 
My pleasure, Graham, as always. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.